This show is brought to you by earpeeler.com. What's up, everybody? This is John Bush from Armored Saint, and you are cranking it up. Hey there, this is Joey Vera from Armored Saint, and you are listening to Mars Attack. This is Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein of Doyle, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what do you say? Be careful, because Mars Attacks. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windorp of Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what's happening? This is Tommy Victor from Prong and Danzig. Hey, all, here's Andreas Kisser from Sepultura and De La Tierra, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Enjoy. Yo, what's up? This is Frank Fellow from Anthrax, and you are listening to Mars Attack. Turn it up! Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attack. Hello, everybody. This is Max Cavalera, Soulfly. You're listening to Mars Attack. Stay metal. This is Brant Bjork, and you're listening to Mars Attack. So keep listening. Hey, what's up? This is Kyle from The Sword, and you're listening to Mars Attack. Hey everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attack. Welcome one and all to episode 157 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And I don't know if you could say this is a continuation of the last episode, because it definitely isn't a continuation of the Storytellers episode on armored saint but it is john bush coming back i'm talking about his career in anthrax so for a lot of people like myself these are the years that we emotionally got attached to anthrax and i'm not diminishing anything the band has done Uh, i love everything that the band has put out from fistful of metal all the way up to for all kings Uh, I can find things that I enjoy on every one of these albums, even if it isn't, you know, something that I turn on all the time. Now, the the Bush era of the band just has something special to it, has a lot to do with John's voice, has a lot to do with John's lyrics. Uh, You can sit here and talk all you want about the band being different. Uh, John will even mention that for him... The band was completely different because they experimented and did a lot more things that Anthrax did not initially do, although he talks about them experimenting all the way from the start and trying to change things as time went on, and that's certainly true. I mean, you could look at them doing On The Man, you could look at them doing uh, things like um, Bring The Noise, then they also did Looking Down The Barrel Of A Gun, They always did all these obscure type covers as well. They've, in latter years, they've started doing more um, uh, popular songs. That's the word that I'm looking for because they just did Carry On My Wayward Son. And obviously that isn't, um, you know, uh, Parasite or Watching You or She by Kiss. (laughs) That would be... To me, that's the equivalent of them doing I Was Made For Loving You. But whatever, the band knows what they want to do better than anyone else. So, um, so yeah, so this is essentially, this episode is seven years in the making. Uh, I went through various people to 
ask about doing this episode. And finally, again, thanks to the good graces of Nikki Law over at Metal Blade, she granted me the ability to do this. Also talking to John with all the other things that he's been involved in with the podcast this year, everything from the Armored Saint Storytellers to the episode on us talking about Carpe Noctum to him lending some comments for the Classic Album series, which I promise will be coming out. And then there's this. The Anthrax Storytellers. Again, this is the, the point in time where, you know, there was a lot of shit going on in my life, a lot of things, a lot of uncertainties. A lot of unexpected things that happened. Uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, Being at New York Steel and, you know, after witnessing 9-11 from about 100 yards away, New York Steel was like that first touch point of me realizing that I needed to move on with my life where previous to that, you know, and not to say that that completely, you know, kicked my ass and got me out of the fog. It took a few years for that to take place. But it was definitely one of the first events to really make me realize that, you know, I, I need to I need to do something. I need to move on. And I will always be grateful to the band Anthrax. I'll always be grateful to Ace Freely, Overkill, Twisted Sister, and we didn't get to see Sebastian Bach that day, but for the bands that played, you know, that is such an important moment in my life. Um, so I, I completely thank all, every one of those bands and thank them for anyone else who was touched on that day and that concert helped them. Um, his lyrics, the, the band's music for these years really helped me through again, times where I, I really grew up. You know, a lot of people think that you stop growing up when you get, to 18 or or to a certain age, you know, I can definitely say that up until, you know, 27 was, you know, floundering through different things and through a series of events, you know, that all of a sudden things clicked and, and I needed to, you know, do certain things, right. Finally realized where I was going in life per se. And, you know, I think I was lucky that it was at that age. I think there are other people that take much longer than that. There are other people that are lucky enough that it's, you know, quicker than that. It's a lot earlier on in life. But the lyrics of John Bush, the music of Anthrax, and a lot of other bands helped me through a lot of tough times, helped me through a lot of happy times. So I will be forever grateful. And it is why I really wanted to to do this. Um I don't want to sound too much like a mark. I don't want to sound too much like a fanboy. But honestly, this, again, is, is a culminating achievement for me. There are a lot of people that ask, you know, who's the biggest you know, artist you interviewed or what's the most important interview? And I always pinpoint when I first got to talk to John Bush. And I think that every one of the interviews that I've done with him really rank among the some of the more important interviews that I have done. I ha- I can say that about Joey Vera as well. I can say that about Richard Patrick from Filter. I can say that about Frank Bello from Anthrax. There's definitely a few people out there that, you know, I listened to the interviews that I did with them 
and I think they're really, you know, and probably not to the fault of the guests, you know, it probably has a lot to do with me and whatnot, but definitely they're, they're different from all the rest. So, um, again, I just, I want to say thank you to Nikki Law for setting this up. I want to thank John Bush for spending all of this time doing all these various episodes and, and different things with me. I greatly appreciate that. And I really appreciate you guys for coming in and, and listening to this episode. Um, after doing the episode, I, I seriously contemplated whether it was worth doing another podcast again. Uh, because it was like one of those things where, you know, I, I won the Stanley Cup per se. I, I did something that I was trying to do for so many years. So not going to happen at this point. I'm going to keep going. I still have some really cool interviews that I want to put out there. And I do want to pull out, put out this last run of the classic album series at least. And, and we'll see where things take us. I want to also remind you guys that I have the Fusion Sonica podcast, which is a hard rock and metal podcast that is a half hour long, comes out twice a month, and it's just me playing a, a bunch of different songs for, for half an hour. Uh, I have the, the flip side to that, which is the No Metal Cred podcast, which is me playing everything from you know just straight up rock music to some pop music. Punk music, ska, we're going to be getting into. Uh, we had Chris Vaglio, who's the co-host of the Galaxy of Geeks podcast, which I'm also a part of. Uh, he just did a episode on hardcore and post-hardcore bands of the mid to late '90s. So check that out. Also, um, I just mentioned to know the excuse me, the Galaxy of Geeks podcast. That's where Chris and I talk about uh, anything geek related: Star Wars, Game of Thrones. Walking Dead, Marvel movies, DC, so on and so forth. And there's also my Victor M. Ruiz podcast where I will be putting out episode six of the Podcasting Nightmares with Richie from Focus on Metal shortly. And uh, that podcast is anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes long. And it's usually me talking about different things that go on in the podcasting world behind the scenes. Also talk about different tech things or just different things that I see via social media. So, uh, yeah, so you can go to FusionSonica.com. You can go to NoMetalCred.com, GalaxyOfGeeks.net, VictorMRuez.com, or you could just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com, and on the right-hand side of every page, you will find graphics with links to each one of those the other graphic that I've left out so far is Earpeeler, which is my podcasting news site. It's basically a supplement to all of the bigger uh, news, uh, hard rock and metal news sites or music sites in general. Yes, we've expanded to including different things like uh, video games and sci-fi stuff and wrestling and comedians and things of that nature. We're just trying to... You know, try different things to see what we can do to help spread the word. And that's that. Go to earpeeler.com. You know, after checking out great sites like Blabbermouth or Brave Words or anything similar to that. If you want to find out about some of your favorite podcasts or favorite artists that are being interviewed, go there. Follow us on Facebook as well. All these sites have social media sites 
Uh, if you go to the various links that I just mentioned, you can find the social media at the top and the bottom. If, if it pertains to a podcast, you can also find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So, uh, before jumping on into the episode, I also want to remind you that we do have a merch store. Uh, if you click on merch on MarsAttacksRadio.com, you can go to the various t-shirts that we are selling and all the other types of paraphernalia. Uh, you will also find links to the Patreon campaign that I'm trying to get off the ground uh, for Ear Peeler. Essentially, anything that you purchase uh, will help out what I have going on. And the ultimate goal is to upgrade the servers and uh, try to get a web developer involved in, in helping um, fix the back end of these various sites and ultimately set up a, a kick-ass studio. If you listen to the first 15 minutes or so of the last podcast, you will know that there was a very annoying hum, and hopefully we're trying to work all that shit out so that it doesn't happen every so often. So there you go. Uh, also, you can advertise on MarsAttacksRadio.com. There's a link to advertise cast right at the top of the site. There's also links to Amazon and a bunch of ads, which I've, uh, for the most part, have hand-selected and uh, included in the site. There are also now quizzes <laughs> that you can be a part of and play along and see if you have the highest score. I set up a quiz for Mars Attacks with a bunch of different uh, questions. So that's that. Try your luck at that. See if you can get the high score. So, And finally, let's get into the rovers for this episode. Excellent. So this is where we pander to you guys, the audience, if you share or like the episodes on either Facebook, Twitter, or even on Instagram. I will add you to this list and read your name off in the next episode. So these are the people that help spread the word for episode 156. Again, if you haven't checked 156 out, it is John Bush and Joey Vera doing a storytellers on their years in Armored Saint. So let's get the ball rolling here. We have Shane Bear. We have Richard Waddle, a.k.a. Richie from Focus on Metal. We have, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Gage Neil King. We have my Galaxy of Geeks co-host, Chris Vaglio from the Inside Metal series. We have Carl Alvarez. He's been on the show before. We have Adam Marshall, Carl Valverde, Valverde, if you're saying it in Spanish. Kifi over at Ghost Cult Magazine. We have Paulo Sergio Thomas. Actually, looks like I put Gage Neil King twice. So you 
did the drill twice. So there you go. <laughs> Fogweaver. We also have Mark Alden Taylor from the Freeform Podcast. We have Eric Kluber, who whose song we debuted uh, during a episode um, was two episodes ago for his band Iron Knot. Uh, definitely check that episode out and check out the links to uh, purchase their previous EPs. And goes for this episode. If you see any of the Anthrax albums within the show notes, if you click on them, go over to Amazon and purchase any of them, or you decide to pick something else up, it'll help the podcast out. So please do that. Continuing on, Nick DeFabrizio, a good friend from way back when, from my from my youth. <laughs> How you doing, Nikki? Uh, we have Juan Fernandez from here in Spain, drummer from a band called Coming Soon. Ah, uh, they've won a bunch of local awards, and I actually helped them uh, with their lyrics on their second album because they had some pretty fucked up lyrics with the first ones. Uh, yeah, anyone listening to me in a Spanish-speaking country that wants to break into an English-speaking market uh, using Google Translate does not cut it. So there you go. Up in Michigan, the Mac Daddy, Kenneth McDonald, uh, Chris Sinzak of the Decibel Geek podcast, Mark Tyler, Joey Haney of the Rock Strikes 10 podcast, Christopher M. Klein, Mr. Bill Wang Jr. himself. Wang, don't tell him you're Jewish. Ha! Um, continuing on, I have a local travel agency that keeps, <laughs> keeps, uh, reposting things on, on Instagram for us. So we have, uh, and I will say this in Spanish, viajes Carrefour Solares. There you go. We have Devin Dungan. We have Metal Dan, who retweeted on Twitter and added some really cool stuff there. Yeah, man. Dan, I didn't know you were from L.A., so that's pretty cool to hear. Thanks for your years of support and for hanging in there. And uh, Closing out the list, the same guy that uh, kicked the list off again. Somebody snuck in twice. Maybe I should have looked at this. Shane A. Bear, thank you, thank you, thank you for constantly spreading the word. So there you guys go. Want to be a rover? Just follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and help spread the word. So there you go. So similar to the last episode, actually it's a little different because I'm not cutting in and out of the conversation. I listened to it. I was going to splice in pieces of the songs and realize that my banter that I used in between was was all right. <laughs> I could live with it. So... Here we go. Let's get into Storytellers with John Bush discussing his years in Anthrax. And for those of you that want to ask this question beforehand or are contemplating things about what the future may hold, listen all the way up to the end of the episode. And I ask some critical questions that may be on your mind about possibly doing some of this material in the future. 
John answers. So hang in there. Here we go. Let's do it! First track here is the first single. Obviously, that was released off of Sound of White Noise uh, when you joined Anthrax. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, another band that you've always had a a loose association with, uh, Metallica, James Hetfield, uh, quoted, or there's a quote in the Greatest Hits package somewhere saying that he felt that this was the perfect uh, metal song. So I always found that to be interesting. The, The track is obviously only... And um, what are your thoughts or recollection about this track? Well, it was the first song that we wrote. Um, you know, the, the story goes that, um, you know, we, they had asked me if I was interested in basically joining the band, and then, I, and then I had some reservations only because of my undying loyalty to Armored Saint, as we've discussed in some past interviews that you and I have had. Yeah. Um, and um, and then when he you know kind of came back around, you know, I remember Johnny Z was saying, "Look at you don't understand these guys are really doing some very inventive stuff," and, and um, you know I think it's it's something that you you should really consider and be a part of if you if you can feel the uh, inspiration from what they're doing. And I said, "All right, well you know you're you're right, of course. Uh, let me let me hear some of it." And then. There was a few things musically that they had sent me um, during that recording or writing process, and um, only was one of them. And so when I I said let's you know let's get together and see if we we have a, a camaraderie as far as writing goes together. And so um, that's when I went to New York and got together with them for like a week. I stayed there and we we said let's just try to write some material. And if it, if it if it feels like there's a, a natural bond, then then that'll be the answer, and that's what we did. And um, and only was like the first thing I think we worked on. And I feel like Scott had some ideas, and then I kind of just worked on some things at the time. And um, and we wrote that song, and it came together relatively quick, if I remember correctly. And um, it it was a song that kind of sounded different than a lot of the you know. I'd say definitely the metal of that time. You know, we're talking about 1992 is when the writing was happening for that. The record came out in 93. So um, I think that, it, that, you know, it's just the way that the music was created and, and, and kind of structured. Um, the single, I mean, the, the, the chorus was kind of simple, but yet um, very, very big. And um, it just sounded unusual. It sounded different. It certainly sounded way different than anything Anthrax probably had done at that time, uh, right. up to that point. So um, it just seemed like a winner right away. And, um, you know, then it became the first single, and it was a big song on MTV. The video was played quite a bit, and our timing was, was really perfect at that point. Um, you know, certainly, obviously, it was 93 when the record came out, and, you know, the grunge movement was in full force and you know, everything was kind of changing with, with uh, a lot of bands um, and, and the evolving of, of just the, you know, the new crop of bands and pretty much putting a lot of bands to waste at the same time. So um, I think we sounded, we were like right on the money in terms of what was happening musically at that point and and it's funny because now that back on Town of White Noise and I kind of think maybe he's a little ahead of his time um, so um, 
I, you know, it was, it was just, it was, a, it was, it, to this day, it's probably the biggest song I made with the band, and it was just a, a enormous, great live song, and had the killer drum intro and um, set the tone, and then the, you know, the, the riff was kind of more of like a chord structured part that was just like a, you know, nah, 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 it was like a wall of sound kind of thing without even it being kind of a riff, you know, so. Um, it was it was a great song and, and you know lyrically it was it was cool it was kind of a, a I feel like there was a little bit of a, a desperate feel to the lyrics and um, you know uh, it's still to this point like I say it's just a very big live song and uh, I think they played it a couple times that was I, I think that was the only song to my knowledge that they played with Joey uh, when he returned um, and I guess and Danny did it a few times but. Um, you know, I, I, I'm real proud of that song. It just, it, it has a lot of impact live and, um, it seems to be kind of an emotional song. And I think it's set the whole ball rolling with me and the band. Absolutely. Yeah. It, um, there's the cover with Joey doing that on the big four release that they did. And I think you're right. I haven't seen anything else. And, I mean, I think it's uh, so, sort of a, a difficult spot where almost everyone and their mother that in, interviews him sort of tries to bait him into saying something, you know, bad about <laughs> the era where you sung in the band. And obviously, I mean, from from what he from his response, he's he's saying that um, that you know he sort of wishes that he was part of the band or whatnot that he thinks that he wouldn't have had a problem singing this stuff and i mean i think you ask that to anybody and they're almost going to say the same thing you know it sort of putting the guy in a bad spot but um yeah definitely a, a track that i remember always being all over uh mtv at the time yeah well you know it it, it, it was I think when the band cut loose with Joey at that point, it, they were ready to do something different. You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. And the reality is, is that for a long time while I was in the band, we really tried to kind of convey that we were the same band. It was the same thing. Cause you know, you don't want to lose fans. You don't want to have people go, I don't like the way they sound anymore. And this and that. So you, you want to, you want to reassure those people and you don't want to lose anybody. But the truth is, as time has passed now, I think I can honestly say that, that we were trying to do some things different, and we were trying to grow, grow with the time. Um, I don't think that we were trying to be part of a, uh, a movement. You know, Anthrax was already well-established at that point and didn't need to go, well, let's be, be a grunge band because, you know, that's what's happening. I don't think it was like that at all. I think it was more of, a, of the idea that the band was um, inspired by a lot of things that was happening around them, and was using that inspiration to kind of push themselves musically to make different music. And I think that's awesome. You know, I, you know, we live in a world sometimes where people feel like you have to repeat the same record, every record. And I personally hate that. I hate that. To me, that's, to me, that's conservative. That's safe. That's, that's not daring. That's not risky. That's like doing the same. Who lives like that? What are you gonna? What do you repeat the same day? It's not Groundhog Day every day in your life. You're trying to grow as a human to seek out new things in life. Um, you know that's not to say you're selling your soul or you're you're turning your back. That's that's, that's bullshit. 
It's just the reality is is that you need to grow. And as a musician, the, you will, the better you become is usually the more you're willing to grow. And, and that's how I see it, you know. It's usually when you do things in a way where it's kind of too thought out or too calculated. Yes, when you see that from artists, then you think, well, but we know exactly what they're trying to do, and now it sucks. And yeah. that's understandable. Look, at, I'm a music fan, too, and I feel that way about a lot of artists. But I think if you just try to constantly grow um, and take your ideas and just try to expand them and without losing the roots and the soul of what you, you, start, you started with, I think that's the best thing you could do. It was like Anthrax was making a pop album. You know, those, right. those, those songs were talking. So, um, you know, it was just, it was showing some broadening of the style of the band and, by me coming in, it just kind of catapulted it to another direction. And, you know, for better or worse, um, you know, that's just the way it went. And it was a very natural progression. So, Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think in, in all fairness, um, when Joey's come back to the band, I mean, a lot of people are, are confusing nostalgia with saying whether the, you know, the band is better or not from from the switch from your era back to back to him because i think with the last two albums that they've released i don't think that they stray all that far from you know we've come for you all and definitely i mean if you look at itunes their biggest selling track right now is breathing lightning which sounds like a like a 70s hard rock song i don't think that strays that much from you know a track like american pompeii or something like nothing which at the time, people went apeshit over because, oh, this sounds too poppy or it sounds too radio-friendly. But yet, you know, nostalgia kicks in, and then all of a sudden it just seems like it's fine. So my 10-year-old son is always asking me, who's better? What, what's better? Do you like this band better? Or do you like this band with this singer better? Or what this band, which is, which is great. He's always asking me these questions. He's very inquisitive. And I said, dude, it's music. You know, it really comes down to what you like better. Yeah. It doesn't matter... There's, it, I go, it's not a game here, you know, between the Cavs and the Warriors, and there's a winner here. <laughs> it's music. It's, you know, it's just about how you interpret it and how, what you like, and, and you'll like certain things better than other things, and it's just the way it is. So, um, you know, what I think, you know, may not be the same as to what you think, and Absolutely. that's okay. It's not, like, it's not like I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. Yeah. So, and I've said that from the beginning. I go, you can choose a preference to what you liked when it came to anthrax, but you didn't, you don't have to dislike something. Right. Um, but, you know, but you know, people are, man, people are, you know, that, uh, you know, you, you look at the, the internet world and it's just a, a constant battle, whether it's, you know, fans of one singer or another, or, you know, styles or, or the political affiliations, you know, everyone, everyone likes to spar here these days. I, yeah. don't, I don't really, yeah. I don't know when this really kind of started, but in any way, I, I don't have time for it. You know, it's just like, look, you like what you like. If you don't like something, you don't like it. But, you know, it's not a big deal. I don't need to go, like, start a fist fight over it. And, um, and you know, I can appreciate what you like because you're a human being and you're entitled to that. So, <laughs> so anyways, um, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. The, the internet has lent its way that even the, the people that prefer Neil Turbin are coming out of the woodwork. So there you go. 
Well, of course, well, hey, Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent today said that, you know, he's, he's no longer going to say hateful rhetoric about, you know, uh, you know, the, the political world. And after this recent shooting where, the, you know, the guys got shot at the baseball field, the, the right. Republican. Uh, it's like, okay, cool. All right, good. Thanks, Ted. You know, you could have done this a while back. And, you know, obviously you have an influence, but, you know, better late than never, I guess. So it's a good thing. You know, what are you going to do? But, you know, it's, you know, we don't have to, like, I mean, you know, once, like, violence starts, you know, I think it's something where it's like, hey, man, do you really mean this? Do you really want to stand? Or can you, like, appreciate somebody else's opinion on this? Because right. that's all it is. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's not, no matter what anyone wants, no matter what anyone wants to say, it's just your opinion. And that's it. So. <laughs> anyway, moving on here. Um Next track that we have here is Room for One More. Yes, Room for One More was the, well, Room was the third song that we did a video for. Um, probably an error, in my opinion, as far as the way the record was marketed, Sound of White Noise. We had a huge impact with only, and then we decided, um, well, actually, it was the record company that kind of muscled into deciding to do Black Lodge second, which I think was a mistake. Right. Um, and so that we made the video for Black Lodge, and it was very expensive. It was Mark Kellington, and uh, it was a really weird video. And, and I, I could really appreciate the artistic uh, expression of it now. Uh, it was kind of weird because what's her face was in it, um, Jenna Elfman, and that was before she was anything in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, which is funny. But um, but we should have went for Room Second to just kind of to solidify the fan base and to let them know that this record, you know, if they were that people had any uncertainties of after only that you know Room for One More would really had kind of reaffirmed that it was just a really powerful killer rock album, and we didn't do that. So we tried to make up for it by making it third, and then we made the video. And it was pretty cool, it was kind of weird video that we did. I think somewhere in the like Florida Everglades. I can't remember where. Somewhere in Florida was this weird house, and we brought all these people in. It was pretty chaotic, and um, um, it was a lot less expensive, thank- thankfully, because the first two were very expensive, and that was good. And it was just a cool, you know, rock video, and it was a big song. And that was that room for one more is also probably, you know, next to only maybe the second biggest song as far as live goes from that record, and. um Cool song, you know, it, uh, um, you know, it, it had a big chorus, um, um, some, you know, the B section, uh, is a really cool part in that song as well. Uh, bluesy vocals, um, real powerful, um, great riff and, and, you know, another really strong live song. So, um, I think. Um, you know, in retrospect, we probably should have made it the second song, but, you know, we didn't. And, you know, I, I don't know if that would have changed the record sales in the big picture, excuse me, because we did sell a lot of records. And, and I think that, um, I don't think it probably would have sold more records per se. I just think that it, what it would have done is kind of solidify because if there's, you know, like I said, if there's any kind of uncertainty, you know, you make a singer change, and then your first song is a little different sounding, at least than what people have prior uh, been exposed to from the band. I think Boom would have just kind of cemented, hey, this is this type of record, and um, it it would have probably been the right move 
to uh, like just really kind of enforce it. But you know, like I said, I don't think it would have. I don't think it would have changed um, anything as far as the final outcome of the record in terms of record sales after like you know a year and a half went by. I just think it might have been maybe a, a little bit more of a. Um, uh, uh, something that the, uh, the the hardcore Anthrax fans would have felt um, a little bit more comfortable with if that was the the second video or second single, but it wasn't. But it was third, and it was still great. And like I said, the song is it was always great live, really, really powerful. Yeah, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, if if there's any doubt with, as you said, with the with the switch, or there's any, you know. Uh, people floating out there, some of the stuff you said previous, you know, that you guys were going for a grunge sound or, or whatnot, that would have backed up more of, you know, reeling in the, the, the fan base that maybe was skittish after hearing a Black Lodge and thinking, oh, you know, this is, this isn't what we're used to, but only was still rocking and closer to, to what they, you know, to what, to what the norm was. So I, I get what you're saying. Well, yeah, it was only with Black Lodge, you know, it was, it was and then also, like, I, I talked about things that seemed a little bit premeditated and a little too methodical, and, and that was, because with Black Lodge, there was two schools of thought with it. One is that it's going to just hit it completely out of the park, and it would have taken, you know, that record from, you know, half a million sales to, like, four million, you know, because I think that, you know, Kellington did Jeremy, and that was an amazing song, and an incredible video. And, um, and, you know, I guess they were hoping that it was going to maybe have the same kind of result. But Black Lodge was a very different song than that. Um, was, uh, even while Jeremy is pretty dark, but, um, <laughs> but and so is the video, let me add, for sure. Um, amazing song. But, but the video for Black Lodge was just, like, we weren't even in it. You know, so, like, there was little, one quick clip of everybody's face, and that was it. Everything else was this, this um, storyline. And the storyline was a little perplexing and weird. And I think in the end, it was kind of like, well, who cares kind of thing. <laughs> it was like, it was weird and disturbing and had this kind of darkness to it. But I don't think it was enough to go, you know, having the band not in a video at all is pretty bold in like the mid-90s. And especially for a band that's kind of like trying to reestablish themselves in a way where, you know, you have a singer change, and, you know, you're, you're, you have a label change and, uh, you know, the sound of, of everything that's kind of happening is kind of metamorphosizing. So I, I would say in retrospect, doing that was probably stupid without, without a doubt. You know, you, you don't want to not do a, a video where the band's not in at all. It just is. Like, you can pull that off if you were U2 at that time. Right. But for us, it was it was a terrible decision. It was terrible. And I'm, I'm hoping it wasn't a case where they had you guys standing around for, for 10 hours just to take that one shot. I don't remember the shot, the video. Uh, I don't, the, the you know, the performance of it i mean again it was just it was like one shot of everybody's face and not even the whole face like a, like an eye or it was weird it was you know it was just very very it was uh, mark pellington's artistic uh, creation he's an awesome guy you know he's very creative you know no doubt about it and, and a lot of awesome stuff but um it just wasn't right for us and it was and it was expensive 
So, um, you know, if you didn't hit it out of the park, then then the bottom line is then it was a mistake, and that's what it was. That's okay. a, that's a fact, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any other recollections regarding Black Lodge about writing the song or, or being presented the, the music initially? The song is killer. I love the song. It's a great song. It's fully dark, and, um, you know, it was probably the first time Anthrax, you know, did a, a kind of a ballad-type song without making fun of it. You know, they had done the, the NFB and those, you know, goofy things, but um, this was the first time that they actually, you know, I think the band actually said, we're going to write a small song and, and, and pull it off. And then the song was amazing. Obviously, Angelo Baladamente, who was kind of funny, because Twin Peaks is just... Um, is re-airing a new new version of it, you know, uh, just right. within the last month. And um, I was never a big fan of Twin Peaks. I know Charlie and Scott were enormous fans of it. But um, and it's funny because I know a guy who works on the show is kid because the school is my kid. And and then he was tell he wouldn't tell me anything. He's like, I'm on the show, but I can't tell you anything. I was like, okay, well, so what then? And he's like, well, what is that? I see him. I said, like, what's your show? I can't tell. I'm like, dude, come on already. So. <laughs> They're funny. It's like, it was Twin Peaks. I was like, all right, whatever. I thought it was going to be <laughs> okay, fine. But um, in any case, um, I love the song. I really dug the version that we did where it was just the strings, mostly in my voice. And I always thought we should have been live. Uh, granted, you know, we didn't have like a, you know, we didn't have Don Airy on keyboards with us and, you know, Tony uh, Carey, you know, you know behind the stage and we, we never, we didn't have that, and we didn't choose to have that. But I thought it would sound live, really cool that way. It would have been really different uh, for the band, um, and I dug that um, version. That it was like a remix. But um, I dig the song, and to have Angelo do it with us, that was too, totally creative and a great idea. And uh, he was, you know, real talented guy. So I love Black Lodge. I do love the song, and it was a cool song live to do, and we did it a lot. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I get, and I feel very fond about the song. I just don't, you know, the video. I like the video. When I look at it, it's weird and different. I just, it was not the right video so, before that time. Cool. The, the last one here wrapping up, Sound of White Noise, is obviously a, um, a chemical composition here, better known as sodium pentothal. Yeah, so I didn't find out the, I like that song. I thought that was a really cool song. You know, it was deep track. It kind of had this punk feel to it, just like driving guitar parts. Um, you know, cool beat in it. Um, we didn't play it live that many times, or else I think we did a few. Um, you know, we certainly took a little bit of a risk by just putting the, um, you know, the explanation, you know, the the, the pharmaceutical. <laughs> uh, terminology as the title, or I don't know how you would say it, the. Um, you know, the medical um, description. Right. Um, right. What, did, what is that song called? You know? <laughs> but I liked it. I thought it was um, a really cool song. I, you know, again, I don't have a huge amount of memories associated with it because we just never really, it was a deep track that we didn't play that much. Um, but I do remember, and I feel like, I, 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 again, I could be wrong, but I feel like it was one of those songs that was really one of the last songs that maybe we worked on during that session. Um, or during that writing process, but it was cool, and I thought it was a powerful track, and um, kind of had that part where the, the guitar riff is fast, but yet the beat is kind of mid-tempo, um, and I thought that was inventive. Um, 
so uh, you know, I, I dig that song. It's, it's, a, it's a fun song. It, it was, you know, it sounded to me that song kind of had like a vintage anthrax kind of sound to it. But yet, still a little modern at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, sounded like anthrax, but sounded a little modern at the same time. That's I don't know. That's my feeling on it. Moving forward to uh, Stomp 442 here, the track that kicks the album off, Random Acts of Senseless Violence. Great song. It's uh, super heavy. You know, I, I don't know what provoked me to go buto in the, the beginning, but it just sounded right. Uh, during that period of time, I was wearing, um, like, flannel. Not, they weren't flannel shirts. They were uh, Pendleton's that a lot of people wore. Um, around where I grew up, and you know, probably a lot of people wear those shirts up in like Oregon because I think that's where Pendleton is, is created actually. Um, right. And they're, they're probably made cold weather. Um, but uh, they're kind of wool sweaters, like um, shirts, and they're very hot. And I would wear those on stage, and I, I already sweat like a maniac. I, if I was naked on stage, I'd be sweating like a piece. Not that I ever would be, of course. Um, but uh, wearing that during that process, uh, during that tour time, man, I was probably such a sweaty mess. But I wanted to wear those shoes because they looked like what the, the cholos back in the day where I grew up used to wear. So I thought that was kind of, I was paying a little um, homage to, um, you know, some of the fashion style of, of East L.A. where I grew up. But um and then maybe that's why I yelled Buddha. I can't remember. I guess I was probably just yelling that around. I, sometimes it's like I have Tourette's or something, and I'll come up with something, and then I'll just, like, yell it out all the time, which is funny because then my son does it. And then my wife will look at me, and she's like, well, where do you think he gets it from? And I was like, yeah, because then I'll start doing something. And she's like, there you go. But then I'll start kind of getting it. When he does it, I'm like, dude, stop. But then she's like, you do it. Like, yeah, I guess I do. Anyway, it's pretty funny. Apple doesn't fall apart from the tree, I guess. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a killer track. It's super heavy, very, very powerful. It definitely felt like the right song to start the record. Big chorus. Really powerful. Um, big hook, you know, still a great hooky chorus. Um, yeah, it's so heavy of a song. Um, we open with it a lot. Um, Certainly on that tour, and um, it was cool. We got um, one of the uh, uh, producers. Um, shoot, his name escapes me now. Um, uh, the Butcher Brothers. It was uh, not Joe, but um, his brother. Sorry, I'm having a brain fart. Anyway, he was. Um, he, you know, they produced the record, and it, we put, we recorded that record in Philadelphia, and, and it's actually in a suburb of Philly called Conshohocken, which felt like we were going back in time when we were there. It was weird, um, but it was a cool little neighborhood, and and we always stayed in Philly, so we we would we would actually we would do the opposite commute that most people do and go from the burbs into the city. We went from staying in Philly and then went out to the burbs in, in Concha Hockett, probably like maybe 20 minutes away or so. But um, they had their own studio there, and those guys were red hot um, by making a lot of hip-hop records like Cypress Hill and, um, gosh, like I think the Fugees. And so they were, they were very successful producers to work with during that time, and we, we, they wanted to make our record. And, and um, what's his name? Phil. I think it's Phil. Yeah, I just um, looked it up online. It's Joan Phil. Yeah, Phil. Uh, we tell them like I, we had that idea for that part where he spoke random acts of sense. 
where it sounded like a like a like a news clip, you know. And I thought that was always a really cool part to the song. And um, um, yeah, I, I think it was a great song. I'm real proud of that one. I think it's heavy. Excellent. The next song here was the first single off of the album. It's fueled. Fueled is cool. It's uh, you know just kind of like a thumping, heavy rock song. I mean, it's pretty. It sounds like a, just a hard rock song. You know, um, great riff. It was a very powerful song live. I remember I would kind of take a break during the B section, and I would like do like I'm on the money, and then I would stop singing. The whole crowd would say, yeah, "Come on." It was always really um, a, a great crowd participation part, and um, um, you know, a cool song and excellent video. Um, it was done by Marco Siega, who I ran into years afterwards because he's he does a lot of commercials and television, and he ended up casting something, being part of the casting at our studio where my wife and I uh, work. And I was just like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" You know, and it was just like a weird kind of. Uh, funny irony that we ran into each other years later while I was doing some other kind of work. Um, but Marcos was awesome. He actually directed a bunch of Dexter episodes, which I used to love that show. Mm-hmm. And um, he was very creative. And that video was fun to do. Um, it, you know, it was a good uh, depiction of, of the band and it, you know, nice setting, powerful, had the car chasing everybody, running them over kind of a little bit. It uh, looked like it's something from the 50s with the big, uh, all the different words spread across the, the, the screen. You know, it was really, really creative. Um, and that song was a, a big song for us. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that it got a lot of video play. At that point, things were already changing a little bit. Uh, and, you know, we... we <sighs> It, it, it's such a drag because Sound of White Noise was such a big record. And then after Sound of White Noise, Electra Records went through a giant upheaval where they basically eliminated, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm making this up, but I want to say somewhere like 30% of their staff mm-hmm. and um, got a new president. They uh, parted ways with Bob Krasnow, who was like the head of Electra for years who, like, worked with the Eagles and, you know, all kinds of giant artists. Um, and, I mean, I, I still don't, to this day, I don't know how they actually fired him because I thought he was actually the head of the label, but um, they did. And, and, and with that, a bunch of people left as well or were fired, including the person that signed us. Um, and they brought in this woman, Sylvia Roan, which I guess at the time was kind of cool. It was a little bit... Um, you know, cutting edge that they hired some woman as the, to be the president it was pretty uh, pretty advanced at that point. But she was very very opinionated, and um, and quite frankly, we and then, and then we also changed managers at that time. We parted with Johnny Z, who was the dance manager for years, and we went with um, um, I can't remember their names now. Uh, I guess I should have done a little research back because my memory just doesn't serve me sometimes, but um, it was the guys who at that time had managed, were managing ACDC. Yeah, sorry, dude. You might have to do some research on your end for my, um, for my holes. I'm sorry. But, um, uh, and, and we had a meeting after stop was because we had pretty much, I felt like we had made stop at that point. I was pretty close to being made when we, when this big tra- transition happened with them. 
And we had a meeting with her, and she just was frank and saying that I never would have done a deal with Anthrax. I really would have done a record deal with you guys. Huh. And this is after, you know, we made this record, or we're almost done with it, and we're like, going, well, it was such an awkward moment. You don't even know what to say to that. You know, like, what, how do you respond to that? You know, so um, other than to know that, well, we're in deep trouble then, because that's, you know, if that's what you think, then, you know, how can we expect that you're going to do right by the band? And they didn't. And she basically didn't. Um, now, granted, we spent a lot less money, I think, making that record, which was a good thing. And, um, you know, like some of the videos, I believe, were a lot less expensive than the, um, than the videos on at least the first two on Sound of White Noise. Um, and, you know, there was no reason for a band like Anthrax to spend 300 grand to make a video. It's just absurd anyway. But um, it was, you know, to, to have that going into this record we knew that that was probably going to be a big problem for us. And it was, and it did. And so, and so in the end, you know, Stomp probably did half of what Sound of White Noise did. And, you know, look, there, I guess some people can make the argument that it wasn't as good of a record. Um, you know, it didn't have as many, you know, big songs like uh, Sound of White Noise did. Um, you know, again, that's up for the, the public to debate. I'm not going to sit there and, think about that too much. Um, you know, I, I have to say in an honest way, it might not have been as solid throughout as um, the sound of white noise was, but I still think that there was at least a few songs that were really, really good. And, um, you know, starting with those first two and to, to know going in that we were going to have that kind of, uh, response from the label that we was, we, it was pretty, a pretty down time. You know, we were, we knew we were going to be fighting a lot of uphill battles, which we ended up doing, but we still did some cool tours. We, we toured with, uh, we did the one tour with, which was the Misfits, Anthrax, Cannibal Corpse, and Life of Agony, which was pretty diverse at that time, 1995. Um, we also did the first run that we, we did after that record came out where the Death Tones opened for us, and that was their first record, so that was really cool, because obviously they were on the the, the cusp of, you know, going on to some greatness, and it was cool that they were playing with us. Um, so, um, and I remember doing quite a long tour of Europe at that point, which was in the middle of winter, um, working really hard, doing a long tour, uh, mostly headlining shows, and playing some places that Anthrax had never played, like Warsaw and I think Czech Republic, and at that point I had never play, played those places, um, Hungary, Budapest. So that was really exciting. So there were some great moments associated with that record. We just knew that in the end, um, the results from the label were just were, were terrible, and, and it hurt us. The last track that I picked off of Stomp 442 is American Pompeii. Well, I like that song. It was a cool song. It, it, unfortunately, it went through like this kind of writing... Um, process where it was it went over a fine-tooth comb and I remember there was a lot of arrangement questions and in the end the chorus probably was overworked and um, I think in the end it probably made us kind of a little bit sour with the song although I thought the song was really cool it had a really cool lyrical theme to it um, you know, showing me, 
you know, how America, that, and at least in our eyes, and, and I think Scott wrote the bulk of those lyrics, you know, maybe I wrote some, but, um, you know, how it was just kind of eroding and, um, and, you know, associating that with, you know, maybe uh, what happened in Pompeii, and it was a cool, like, a metaphor for that. And, um, I, I thought the song was cool. It had a kind of weird, flangy guitar part in the beginning with the vocals, where the vocals start, right? Like, I, I just... Uh, started right away i thought that was a really inventive song i just think that what happened is that we kind of um we we just beat it up a little too much in the writing process and then it, it just and i i'm i'm me personally and i'm only speaking for myself here but me personally i think that when you have to like overthink a song then it's just it's it's in trouble and um i think that and that that song was a perfect example of that but i do like that song and I think it was very creative. Um, I just remember going over and over in the studio trying to, to find a place where everybody was satisfied, and I don't think everybody was. Um, so, and, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that some, you know, the best material stuff that kind of writes itself almost. Um, you know, I guess maybe Lennon and McCarty might disagree with that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, in my, my personal experience, is that songs that kind of happen in a real natural, easy way are just the best songs. I think when you have to like sift over something again and again and again, I, I find that the song kind of just loses a lot of momentum um, and then ends up not being, you know, great. And um, that's what my experience is as a songwriter. And, you know, I have legitimate experience because I've been writing songs for, you know, over 30 years. So I think <laughs> I can, I, I can, safely say at least that's my opinion and and um and i believe that but you know some people may disagree but that's just the way i see it and i think that that song was a perfect example of it being overworked and hence didn't have the impact that it could have had but i i, I do like that song i think it's a great song very cool yeah i think it's a great song as well and um Real quickly here, this was the band's introduction to getting Dimebag, obviously from Pantera, involved. Right, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. that obviously, um, it was during that time where actually Danny was excused from the band, because Danny did start with us on the writing process, and I even feel like in the recording that he was there for a little bit. Um, I couldn't be wrong. Again, I, you know, we're talking a while ago now, but... Um, yeah, I and, and then that was you know and that was that was another change. So you know, again, I'll never make excuses because I, I just don't like doing that because it's you know it's to me it's a cop out. But the reality is, I'll sum it up this way and just say that in my time in Anthrax, we just went through so many changes. We went through so many different managers. We went through a couple different record companies. We had personnel changes. And when you do these things, it just it it you know it it, it could go two ways. You could have it, it could be great or it could suck. And right. if it sucks, it sucks. You know, so you do these things sometimes because you you know you feel like you need to. And I you know, I get that. I understand that. But if it doesn't if it doesn't connect or something doesn't work, then it hurts you. And that's the reality of life. And for me and and for my time in Anthrax, I feel like all those changes that happened and they were a lot of them and they happened almost every record. They were just too many. And, and I think that affected us in a negative way. Um, and that was the beginning. We, we went through the giant. So when you go to this stuff, that's not only noise. 
Then you do stop work. The label goes through a giant, enormous change. And then we, then we get, then Danny leaves the band. And so you have a personnel change on top of that. Uh, let alone the whole scene of metal and music changing. Okay, because let's face it, from 93 to 95, it changed even more. So in right. the early 90s, you know, it was, it was changing. And then by the mid-90s, it was changing dramatically. So, um, so all that was happening. And, you know, that's when, but it was great to get Dimebag in there. I think it was, I'm assuming it was Charlie's idea to bring Dimebag in to, um, to uh, play a couple leads because we, we needed to. And we also had Paul Crook play some leads, who was a great friend of the band at that time and, and just part of us hanging around. And he's incredible, and he played some awesome leads, too. And um, it was kind of, and I think even Charlie played a couple leads. And um, so, but, you know, the, the lead guitar position was not, was kind of under uh, a question. So, so, and that was something that, again, would probably be a head-scratcher to the fan base of, like, well, who was, because, like, we made, we made the two videos, and uh, Fueled and Nothing, as a four-piece. Right. So, um, you know, then you, you go, you basically don't have a lead guitar player at, on those two uh, uh, songs uh, on the video. Um, I don't think there was leads in it, because we were, you know, there was a time where we actually probably didn't have some leads in some songs, which was cool, you know, it was just the way that the songs were being written, but, um, you know, but still there's this, you know, void. This band was a five-piece band for years, and now there's four guys, and so that was, it was kind of, it was a void, and it was kind of different, and maybe a head-scratcher and confusing, so again, change. Uh, Paul did come out on the road with us and played live with us, and it was great, because Paul's just an awesome person, more than anything, but he is an incredible guitar player as well. So he was great, and he came out, and he kept, he kept a nice, cool camaraderie through the band because he's a, a very likable guy and just uh, always happy, and so it created a, a, a warm environment with Paul there. But, but Paul was never established as being the lead guitar player of Anthrax because we didn't commit to it. So, um, again, it was like hired gun there, so... One of the most disputed or interesting things that I've seen on the web, and it was attributed to to Dan Spitz, that he supposedly had a hand in in teaching Dime some of the solos that Dime ended up playing on the album. But from what you're saying is Dan was out of the picture before Dime even got involved. Um, I would emphatically say that's not true. I don't think Dime was, was learning leads of those songs from Danny. No, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, I think he was already out of the picture and, you know, that's why we got dying because we didn't really know what we were going to do with some leads and we asked him to play on a couple of songs. So, um, no, I don't think that was the case uh, at all. And, and even if that was the case, that would be sort of one of the most, I don't know, wacky or surreal moments, wouldn't you think? One of the most <laughs> decorated guitarists of that period and you know for a lot of people the top metal guitarist of you know for for a specific generation i i don't specifically see him coming into a studio and taking direction from anyone as to what he needs to play well it wouldn't doesn't make sense why would we have the guy who was basically being let go tell this guy to come in and, and how to play a lead or what how to, that doesn't it's just illogical and i don't remember right. that I, I would say that did not happen. 
So, um, I mean, Charlie might have given him his opinion on, like, what direction he might have wanted to go. Because, you know, Charlie is, is basically the overseer of the music of Anthrax. That's, that's what he is. Uh, so he might have given his opinion on that, but I don't, but, you know, certainly it wouldn't be a way of, hey, this is how you should play it. I mean, it was Dimebag, and I think that would be insulting. And, um, and I think we, the whole reason was to let him do his thing. So Moving on to Volume 8. <laughs> Uh, an album that, for me, has the, the opening three tracks, there's very difficult to compare it with anything else as far as how strong I think these, these three tracks are. The, the first track here is Crush, and, and I can specifically remember hearing this for the first time because it uh, freaked my ex-wife out completely and wanted me to <laughs> take it out of the CD player immediately. Oh, what, what, what part? Scared, uh, j- just the the whole you know the the rhythmic pattern with uh, that kicks off the track and everything and just uh, by the time we got to the breakdown the, the the breakdown in the car was that the CD had to come out so <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a rad, that was an awesome song and we used to open with it of course and I kind of think that's another song that kind of sounded like a little ahead of its time you know I don't. It had like a, you know, it, it almost had like this kind of Ramstein like um, ministry trip to it. Um, uh, it just was very relentless, sounded, you know, very um, modern, uh, but in a cool, you know, in a cool way. You know, it, it was it was great. I love that song. Super powerful, heavy, um, you know, uh, big chorus. Um, you know, it. it like you said, it has this kind of relentless thing, incredible drumming. So it was, uh, yeah, I dug it. You know, I, we, like I said, we used to open with it. I think on that tour, that's when we used to come out with, like, uh, our work suits. So it was very kind of, I think the whole thing was kind of industrial kind of influence around that song and that particular live show, at least on that song. Now, the record was diverse. And I think it had a lot of different styles on it. And again, that kept showing how Anthrax, I think, was willing to take chances and willing to grow. And let me say for the record that I think Anthrax is the type of band that has always been willing to do that from the very beginning. Always was a band right. that never just said, we're going to do this, and this is all we do, and that's it. We're, you know, a thrash band. That's not what the band was. The band was always willing to take chances. You know, obviously, you can go back to I'm the Man and, and know that for a fact, which was very daring at the time, and that was way before I was in the band. But, you know, the band was always willing to take chances, and I think that was one of the great things, is one of the great things about the band. Um, you know, I felt that way while I was in the group, and I felt that way before and after I was in the group. But, um, you know, I think that when you do that, you don't always, it doesn't always connect. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. I just mean that, you know, not everybody may be on board with what you do, but I think the willingness to do that is incredible, and I think that that's what you should do as an artist. Otherwise, you just, as I said before, you're kind of just playing it safe. You're just playing it conservatively. You're playing it to what you think the fan base is going to want, and that's it. And I think that, it, to me, it's always confusing because that's very unmetal. Metal should be something that is, is risky. And when you, do, when you play conservatively then you're conservative. That's the meaning of the word. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like that. But, you know, you, like I said, that sometimes you take chances and may not always work. And there were some weird songs on that record with like Harm's Way that was acoustic. We had all the, you know, we had um, 
you know, the coffee song and, um, you know, uh, Katrina. There were like these 30 seconds, 40 second songs that were just weird little segues, um, which are great. We would play those songs live and the crowd loved it because it was like, you know, here's a 50 second song. It was like a punk, you know, like it went back to like old school punk days or something. Um, and then, you know, then we had Catharsis, which, you know, I think maybe is one of the best songs I ever wrote in the band, you know, with the, with the band, should I say. Um, just huge chorus. It sounded like, you know, just a killer rock anthem. Probably never got its due, quite frankly. Um, great lyrics, um, deep, and also just, um, you know, killer riffs. And, and like I said, big chorus. That song should have been big. You know, as far as I'm concerned, catharsis should have been like a hit, and it wasn't, and it was a shame. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? We were going through another time of change. We had, we had left Electra then at that point, and then we went with this little label that was a startup label called Ignition Records. Um, and, you know, it was super risky to do that, and we took a chance, and unfortunately it backfired, and the label eventually went out of business and, um, you know, it, we didn't have the muscle behind it. Um, and that was a big giant step backwards for the band. Um, primarily in terms of just media exposure. Now, obviously the metal world was aware because, you know, the anthrax had put out a record and, and people in the metal world are going to know for the most part. But, you know, in terms of, letting the general giant public know, which when you're making records that are selling, you know, half a million to a million records, you're not just getting a portion of, you know, the diehard metal fans, you're getting a broader base. And those people, they just weren't informed anymore, I think. And with songs like Catharsis, they should have been. And that song should have been all over the radio at that time. And I just don't think we had the muscle to make it happen. And it was discouraging. We didn't make a video for that. We did make the video for Inside Out. I'm kind of going around all over because I'm just talking about the record. But Inside Out, we made the video um, that was based on the whole Twilight Zone um, episode. And that was incredible. Um, really, really creative. Um, I think Marcos did that video as well. If I'm not mistaken. Um, drawing a blank on that, but I think he did. Um, and that video was just super inventive. Um, I remember I had to wear these. You wanted me to wear the, the, these contacts, then, and so man, they were hard contacts at the time. They weren't soft ones, and I didn't wear contacts, and I could barely. I mean, to this day, I, I have to wear glasses in my life because I can never put anything near my eye because I'll freak out. And I had to put these hard contacts in, and then I wore them for hours. And then we were on this plane where they're spraying water on us with these giant fans. So for so much of that video, I don't even think I had my eyes open because I couldn't, couldn't. And then at the very end of the scene where they kind of walk through the aisle of the plane and we're all sitting there supposed to be like regular people. And I look up and I just look like I'm going to cry because I couldn't keep my eyes open at that point because they were hurting so bad. I think I had like two days of recovery of just not opening my eyes. So um, I really like, <laughs> I, I, I did a lot for the, for the sake of that video. And I don't even know if you can even tell that they had contacts in the video, which is 
pretty funny in retrospect. But the video itself for Inside Out was super cool and very creative. And that song is awesome. You know, it was really powerful live, cool lyrics, um, very, you know, that middle, that B section, it's like this relentless part. I think I needed a second lung or a third lung, should I say, to be able to do it live because it was just very, very um, breathy. Um, but it was awesome. And then it, and then it kind of goes into this open chorus that was just huge. And Inside Out was one of the best songs during my time in Anthrax live, I thought, to play. Um, it just really, you know, had this kind of explosive, uh, dramatic tone to it. And um, I, I love that song. So, you know, you say those, again, the record, again, was, was, had a lot of different kind of parts to it. Paul Cook was, again, involved in that record because Paul produced my vocals and a lot of the other musical parts. And then um, then we had, um, it escapes me now, who mixed it. Um, I remember he was a really great guy. He, he actually mixed um, a, a Soundgarden record, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't Michael Beinhorn, but, um, again, sorry. You're going to have to do some a little bit of your own... Um, research on that but um uh the, but i thought the mix of that record was cool and um you know i think the record was really cool and it, it didn't get the props that it deserved because uh, you know again the maybe if we were on a real label um it probably would have been a whole different ball game um but i i still think that it's a really cool record i thought the album cover was really creative and the whole kind of origin of, of you know, the, the, the booklet to go along with it was very, very cool. And they, like I said, the art was, was real original. Um, and those first three songs, like you say, you know, I think were amazing. You know, the way that started, set the tone for that record. Um, I like Volume Made a lot. I think it's the one record that kind of gets overlooked, but it's kind of unfair. I, I have to say that it's, Possibly my, my favorite album by the band, so. <laughs> um, and just, uh, you mentioned the, the, from what it says online, it was mixed by Chris Sheldon. Chris Sheldon, that's right. He was a great guy, super nice guy. He, I thought he, I think maybe he did the, the Foo Fighters record. Um, he might have did the color and the shape. I don't remember now, but we... We got him because of that, and we asked him, and he, he was willing to come mix it for us, and I think he actually probably took a pay cut to do it because he was really into doing it, and I thought he did a, an awesome job. And like I said, Paul did a lot of the um, the mixing and engineering of the recording of that record, which was real cool. And we, that was the time when we actually basically set up the infamous Yonkers rehearsal studio where I spent a lot of time, and so did the band, um, writing songs um, in the the famous Yonkers re- rehearsal studio, we, we we converted it into a recording studio, and that that was again where how things were kind of changing with, um, with you know with recording styles and processes where you could record things uh, much easier and in kind of like a home studio environment, and and that's what we we did that. And I remember we we went out halfway through the recording of that to go tour with Pantera. We did two tours of Pantera, two different legs in America opening for them. And the second leg, we came back and I had gotten sick out in the road, um, probably courtesy of 
some kind of virus I picked up as well as I'm sure all the alcohol I was consuming. Um, but then I came back and I started to try to sing for the record and I just couldn't do it. I was sucking. And we were going like, what? I was freaking out going, what is going on? What, what's wrong with my voice? And um, it turned out I went to a doctor and he's like, well, you got not only one infection, but you have two infections and your voice is thrashed. <laughs> so he's like, you cannot do anything for 10 days. You just have to be quiet and sit and like do a lot of reading or something. And I was like, okay. And I was in New York and, uh, you know, I didn't, even though I spent a lot of time in the course of 13 years when I was in Anthrax in New York, I was, you know, I never permanently moved to New York, although I was there so much. And, um, and I just remember at that time wanting to just go home going, I want to go home because I couldn't do anything. And, and, but I, I don't know, I guess maybe we just didn't have the budget at the time or it just made more sense for me to just stay. So I, I literally stayed like, in New York for like 10 days, not being able to do anything. And um, it, was, it was a depressing time in my life, I remember. But then once my voice came back, it was, it was awesome. And it was totally belting it out. And then I remember me and Paul laughing because he was recording me. And I'm like, dude, I sound like King Kong here. I went, so it <laughs> paid off. Like once I, the doctor kind of nursed me back to health and, and resting. And then I came back and then I, then I did all the vocals for that record. And, um, you know, I think there's some really, some really cool singing on that album. So to to quote you from from the album, like a monster crossing the Hudson River, you were able to stand and deliver. Yeah, well, that was cool. We will play on the Armored Saint lyric, and um, um, you know, that's a great song. I love that song, Big Fat. Really heavy, really powerful song. You know, a little sweet emotion in, no doubt about it, during the verses. But um, but it was um, it was cool. That was a great song. Yeah, and, and your memory is uh, pretty good here because uh, Chris Sheldon did do the color and the shape, and as far as the director for Inside Out, it was Marco Siega. Yeah, I, I know. I, I remember that. Marcos was cool. He did like three record videos on Anthrax, and really good guy, and uh, very very creative. Even the Nothing video, which Nothing, I don't think is one of our stellar performances musically, but um, the video was pretty fun and it was pretty funny. Um, you know, playing the whole anthrax cow thing, and we're playing on a cow, and it's funny. Um, so, Marcus did did right by anthrax in the videos he made. Really great. Cool. And the last track that I wanted to ask you about off of Volume Eight uh, also features Dimebag, like Inside Out. But this track also has an appearance from Phil Anselmo. It is Killing Box. Yeah, I remember Killing Box was one of those songs that we kind of reworked. Uh, and I remember we asked Phil to sing on it, and he did it, like, on the bus um, on tour, because we were on tour with Pantera. So we said, can you do can you do this? And he goes, all right. So we, from my memory serves me right. You know, I, I guess it was probably the beginning of Pro Tools, I'm, I'm assuming. I, I really don't remember now. but And we're talking about, like, 1997, maybe. The, the the winter of 97 beginning like January February the record came out now we recorded maybe we did two tours I think it was maybe at the end of 97 and maybe the beginning of 98 with Pantera it was two different legs that we did but um, maybe anyway it was during that time where we asked Phil to do it and he, I remember him recording it on the bus I remember Paul like had a little home studio and he 
he recorded his part on the bus. It was cool. It was great to have Phil in there. I mean, I, you know, we obviously we were very close with those guys at that time because we had toured with them and um, Diamond played with us. And, you know, and then, you know, obviously there, there more than anything there was a history of friendship that went with the fans um, from way back. Um, I mean, I remember Pantera guys, Phil and Diamond coming to Armored Saint shows in the mid '80s uh, and bringing you know, their albums to show us. So, I mean, we, there was just a lot of history with those guys as people. And, um, and we did those tours and, you know, it's funny, we did those tours and it was kind of a weird time because Stop was kind of way over by then and Volume 8, you know, was, hadn't, hadn't even come out yet. But you would think by doing two four-week tours of Pantera at that time, you couldn't have a better setup for a record than we did for Volume um, but for some reason, it just, you know, it didn't help the record that much. And I, you know, again, I'm not one of these people that blame others too much for, for success or, or even failures in my life. But I do think that, again, if we had the right machine working for us, the setup for those records based on those tours should have been amazing. Um, it should have created a big, uh, uh, anticipation for that album and it it didn't and I think that the label was just too little and too uninformed and, and just couldn't get it done like we had it was like this big band was on this little label and the little label just it couldn't get it done and that was we also made a we also made a change with management again so that was three times that we changed management and that's when we met Walter O'Brien who was Pantera's manager obviously he came in and to we had done this tour with them, and he wanted to work with us, and we were, of course, grateful to work with Walter because Walter, you know, did amazing things with Pantera. So we were like, okay. So the, the guys from ACDC, I can't remember their names now, but at that time, you know, it just it wasn't, it just didn't feel right. So we, we left them and went with Walter, and Walter was great. Walter is awesome. He's an you know, incredible rock manager, and obviously his, you know, legacy speaks for itself, but... Um, I just think that he could only do so much with with this tiny little boutique label that we were on. He could, you know, I mean, you can't you you need funding for things, and if there's no money, there is no money for there, and the distribution was was not happening. So, um, you know, if that label would have came out on Electra Records, that that record, you know, with the rec with a normal record company machine, then I think we would have had a huge record. And if you would have sold, you know, went with, to, with like catharsis to rock radio, I mean, I think we would have had a huge hit. So, yeah. And, it, you know, again, it's, it's a moot point now because one would never know and um, it didn't happen that way. But it, it should have. <laughs> so. Why was that label chosen over, say, like a, a Metal Blade or, or even... You know, a Roadrunner who was, I mean, obviously not as big as they ended up being, but, you know, there were, there were metal labels around that were established that probably, as, as you're saying, had, had a bigger machine behind it that could have pushed the album a lot further. I don't know. I don't really want to say, I, I don't really remember exactly, and I don't want to say something that's not completely true. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that maybe we felt like this was a cool idea, and these people who are running in, I can't even remember who was involved at the time, 
um, were really, I, I think they wanted us and they, they were trying to, you know, they, they had this idea that they were really going to do right by the band. And so, and maybe like there was this little upstart label, there wasn't a lot of people there. So it was almost like having your own label maybe. Um, right. And so maybe that all sounded kind of enticing at the time. Um, it just didn't work, unfortunately. Okay. Another thing that I remember of this time period was that I had tickets to see you guys on the Maximum Rocks tour. And by the time you guys came around to New Jersey, you were no longer on the tour. <laughs> well, that, that we did about three weeks of that tour. And um, it was like a 12-week tour, if I remember correctly. And it was great because we were going to go out, you know, with Monte Crew, Negative, Anthrax playing sheds across the state. But unfortunately, that was also the beginning. And so much was changing at that time. And Motley was not what Motley is now. And they were, you know, it was like, at that point, with all due respect, a lot of people just didn't care. And, um, and I guess us and Megadeth weren't enough to, like, sell out sheds ourselves. I mean, not that, you know, Motley was a headliner and it was, you know, all the emphasis was on them to do it. Don't get me wrong. There were some good shows. I remember we sold out Universal Amphitheater. I remember and um, on the shows that we did, there, there were some good ones. And I don't know what happened once we left. But what it basically, in a nutshell, happened was that um, promoters were eating it. And so they asked for a reduction, and so they came to us and said, we want to take a reduction, we want you to take a reduction, and we said, we're already getting this amount of money, if we do that, we're going to lose money, we can't, we can't do that, like, I mean, we weren't making enough money to take a reduction to actually stay in the black, we would have been in the red, and, you know, to do another eight, nine weeks of that tour, to lose money it just, it, we couldn't do it. We literally could not do it. It wasn't like the 80s where you took a, where you you do a tour and you eat it and you say tour support, but it's going to be, be so beneficial for your career that you do that. At that point, it was not beneficial for us to, uh, number one is we weren't going to be taking tour support from anyone because we, at that late time, I think we were with Beyond Records because Volume 8 was already well and done. And um, <clears throat> that's when we put out the, uh, the greatest hits combination, the Return of the Killer A's, um, right. which was on Beyond, which was Motley's label at the time, which, you know, that was kind of like a, we just did that as a segue as well. Um, and it was cool because we did this greatest hits record that was a combination of both eras, and that was around the time, too, that we talked about doing the, the tour with both me and Joey, and um, that never happened, but... Um, we couldn't take tour support. We're not going to do that. It just would not make any sense to do that whatsoever. And we, w we weren't going to be able to get it from anywhere anyways. So when they asked us to take a reduction from whatever amount we were making at that time to, I think basically they, they cut our money in half. We were like, we, we, we can't do that. So we, we had to leave the tour, and that's why we left. So, I mean, I don't know what Megadeth was making, but, you know, whatever they... I'm sure they took a reduction too, but it wasn't enough for them to, to not tour. And I'm sure Molly did too, but it was, you know, they were the headliner. So, um, you know, that's the way it was. So, um, we didn't want to lose leave that tour. It was going to be a fun tour. And the, and the amount of time that we were on it, we, we did have fun and we had some great shows and probably 
played in front of people that maybe, you know, hadn't seen the band in years or maybe had never seen the band. But to, to like I said, take a reduction at that point, it just that wasn't going to happen. So Now that I remember, there was a, a pay-per-view that was shot, and you guys did appear in that. We did appear on that, yes, and that was very um, beneficial to us. I remember that, yes. And we did play some cool venues. I, I think we played Red Rocks, and, um, and there were, you know, most of them were sheds. Um, it's a shame that we didn't do the finish the tour. It really is. Uh, you touched on the greatest hits uh, there for a second. Um, what was it like doing that Ball of Confusion cover? Uh, how How did they approach you with the idea of having a track with Joey involved? I don't really remember exactly whose idea was it. I, you know, I don't remember. I think it seemed logical to do a cover. It might even have been my idea. I was, you know, I'm always into old school soul and R&B. I'm under temptation. Um, and I thought that was a cool, I don't want to say it was exactly my idea, but I felt like maybe it was, but, um, um, I thought it was cool, you know. Me and Joey. I, anytime Joey and I were in, when were in um, in the same surroundings, we it was fine. As a matter of fact, I remember like we had like limos that took us to the recording, and then limos take us back to the hotel. And then him and I ended up being in the same car together. It just so happens, and you know, it was it was never awkward actually ever. You know, around Joey, um, I never felt that way, and I don't. I can't speak for him, but. Um, it certainly wasn't then. It was fun. It was cool. We were doing this thing, you know, showcase both our voices and how different they they really are. And um, it was a cool thing. It was a little. It was a story to go along with that record. Um, again, it was on Beyond Records, which was Motley and Alan Kovacs label. And again, that was it was a time when I felt like all these indies were popping up and. Um, you know, we were grateful that they put this record out for us, and um, it was certainly a transitional record to just decide where we were going to go from there, from Volume 8 to which eventually became The Country Wall. But again, it was still a kind of like we were on broken ice here, not really sure, and we had no island. You know, we are on an island band. Like, we didn't, not island records, because it would have been cool to stay on island records. <laughs> um, it, was, it was like... We just were kind of, we were addressed, and we didn't really know where we were going, you know, and it was scary. Um, and we were trying to do things that just kind of hold on, and, you know, again, some of those things were, ended up being cool, but some of them ended up being just very shaky. And, and but, but this was a good thing, the idea of that, and then we were going to do the tour, and Really, in, in retrospect, I don't really exactly remember why it didn't happen. I, I feel like there was um, there was some uncertainty about what everybody was going to make, and I think that you know that was a thing where Joey maybe felt like he was not in the band, so maybe he should have made a certain amount of money, and it was going to. I don't know this for a fact. So I don't really want to say the story out there and create any kind of um, havoc because it's not my goal. But, um, right. But maybe, but maybe you know, it, we weren't all going to make the same amount of money. I guess at that time we kind of felt like we all should have made the same amount of money, and because we weren't going to, then that was a problem. So, and moving on to the last album that you obviously did with the band, uh, we've come for you all. The first track that I picked here is "Refuse to Be Denied," which is the the first track that I heard off of it. I remember hearing. Um, 
Eddie Trunk debuting this on his show. I don't remember if he was in New York by that time or not, or if he was still in, in New Jersey at that point in time. I mean, one of the things that always stood out to me, and you're you're talking about all the sort of hiccups along the way and all the different bumps that you guys ran into. I remember this coming out, like something ridiculous, like six months ahead of time in Europe, and then in the States we had to wait six months to... Uh, to to buy the album this was when napster was already in full effect and again was another point in time where it seemed like another sort of roadblock to uh, hinder what the band was trying to do let's do as many things possible to really fuck the band up i mean I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um you know i i i i'd agree with what you're saying and i don't really remember that I mean, let, let me rephrase that. I do remember something like that, but why I don't remember. But what you're saying sounds right, and I just can't recall why that happened. I, you know, maybe it was we did the deal for Europe, but we still were trying to feel like maybe we'd get a major in America, so we, yeah, so maybe we didn't, um, so we didn't give them the rights to the states. I think that's the only thing that makes sense if, in my memory, and I think that probably was the case. We knew Nuclear Blast was a killer label in Europe, and they were doing really well for people. But I guess we didn't want to, you know, give them the whole, the whole, you know, enchilada, and we didn't give them the states, and that's why it didn't come out immediately here, um, which was a mistake um, again, because you know that's now you're forcing people in America at that point to pay like import prices and shit. So that doesn't make right. any sense. Um, so, and then when the record officially comes out on the stage, you're going to have less people buying it because some people already bought it. So, yeah, that was, that was dumb. Um, and um, I don't know. But, you know, Nuclear Blast did a great job in, in Europe for, for us, for sure. And, um, and there was a great vibe on We've Come For You All. I mean, that was a record that kind of, you know, it almost seemed like we established the band a bit. And uh, it was super powerful. And... Um, you know, it had this good, great vibe to it. Um, you know, Safe Home was a really great song. It, you know, just had this very um, kind of a yearning to it, and uh, it, it felt very passionate, and I think a lot of people felt that when they listened to it, and it was a great song live. Um, you know, and it, it, it sounded like the right record at the right time for the band. Um, so, um, again, if you eliminate some of the mistakes made on the business front, um, you know, it would have been better. <laughs> Needless to say. Uh, but we didn't tour a lot for that record. And we, you know, we worked real hard on it. And um, it felt like, you know, Caggiano came in at that point and uh, he helped produce it with Eddie Wall and, and, um, and they did a, the, the fine job making that record. And there was some great performances and, um, I think everything about the, the record itself was awesome. Is there anything specific that you remember about Refuse to Be Denied? Oh, Refuse to Be Denied. I remember playing that song a lot, live a lot of times, and it just had this really cool vibe. I mean, it certainly was inspired by 9-11 and, um, you know, just kind of being patriotic without being cheesy. And um, it had this kind of cool swagger to it in the, in the groove of the song. And... Um, and it was it was it was a cool song. I mean, it was really 
went over very well live. Um, which used to be tonight is one of those songs that, you know, it was kind of like, it didn't sound like vintage 80s anthrax. It sounded like a modern anthrax song, but it still sounded like anthrax, but it just sounded like a song that should be, that came out in 2003. And that's what it was. So, um, it, it, it was almost like a cool, just hard rock song. Um, and, um, when we played it live, it, it was, it was always a winner. The, the next track here uh, that I have is Any Place But Here. Any Place But Here was cool. I remember I had a lot of those lyrics and kind of inspired by um, by uh, refugees. I think I read some article that just really kind of triggered my thoughts about it, which is funny because that was kind of way ahead of its time. If you look about what's happening in the world now, I mean, right. that's all appropriate today. Because it's, you know, let's face it, you know, <laughs> there's millions of refugees. So, but there still is then. But I think that's what it was about. It was like, hey, you know, I got to get out of here. Any place but here. And I think that was kind of the, the premise of the song. And um, like I said, it's kind of ahead of its time, if you think about it, in terms of what's happening currently in the world. Um, and it had a really powerful chorus, um, cool intro, good bad bass part. Um, Sounded very dramatic. Um, I like that song. We didn't play it live a lot, but we did play it a few times. Um, and it was always a good live song. Um, you know, it's just kind of one of those deep tracks, but I always thought it was a great song. Cool. The next track here is Nobody Knows Anything. Uh, Nobody Knows Anything was, uh, was a cool kind of just the thrasher. Um, the drumming was spectacular. I remember playing that for my roommate at the time, who was a drummer, going, dude, you want to hear something sick? Listen to this. And um, I played it for him. He just was, his floor hit the his jaw at the floor. Because that middle section that Charlie plays is just awesome. And um, <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was a rad song. You know, kind of like, you know, no frills type song, very powerful, big chorus, kind of almost like a punk type style. Um, but, uh, you know, the drumming is, is really one of the highlights of that song. And, um, we, we played it live a lot and it was always a, it was always a great tune live. Um, and I think that's maybe one of Charlie's finest moments as a drummer, in my opinion, uh, in, at least certainly in the years I was in Anthrax, it was, it was, uh, he really took it to a whole nother level. Absolutely. Uh, uh, myself being a drummer it was always a, a track that stood out to me and, and always a track that, you know, when the naysayers came along and would say, oh, well, you know, I've lost interest in the band, it would be, all right, well, check this out, <laughs> you know, uh, just to yeah. show how, you know, Charlie was still on top. And sure enough, as you're saying, oh, well, yeah. I was the drop hearing it. Yeah, it was a great song. And also I remember Black Dahlia was a rad song on that album too that really yeah. was like it. I, Atari was into a little black metal at that time, and so was Rob. He's probably still into it. And, um, and um, you know, we kind of used a little inspiration from that with the blast beat and that, but that song was crazy. It had this really powerful feel to it that sounded very modern, um, I think, at the time. And that song was cool live, and we played it a few times, too. Um, you know, again, it sounded modern and and this was 2003 at the time and 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 
it, you know, it sounded like anthrax, but it didn't sound like anthrax from 1987. It sounded like anthrax 2003, and it sounded very modern and powerful and heavy and um, crushing and um, fresh. You know, so I remember that there's really, again, I think we've come through all the pretty diverse record, different than Volume 8 was, but um, versatile and, and again, it showed just a lot of different styles that the band was willing to do. You know, you got Black Dahlia, and then you had Refuse to Be Denied, and you had well, What Doesn't Die, but then you had Safe Home. So you had a lot of different styles on that record, and it all worked. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the last one is, you know, more or less a, a straight-ahead hard rock song here uh taking the music back which also had an appearance uh from roger daltrey there as well right but that was amazingly cool i didn't sing with roger because at that time he was in la and we were in new york doing it so we kind of sent him the tracks and um and then he did it himself but just to go well i'm gonna song with roger daltrey that was <laughs> uh the highlight of my career uh and he did great you know i think it was a time where he did some parts, and we were not 100% believing in them, and we had to actually ask him if he would do it again or something like that. And we're like, oh, my God, we're really going to ask Roger Daltrey to redo something. I, um, but we, <laughs> I think we thought he could have done it better. And anyway, it's kind of ballsy. But, and I think he was like, cool, you know, no problem. Um, it's pretty funny. But, um, yeah, I think that was one of the earlier songs that we recorded um, and I think that Charlie always had the idea for that being one of the titles, and then it didn't end up becoming the title of the record. And ironically enough, they used worship music. I, I know he wanted music in one of those titles, and he didn't get <laughs> right. it with Paul, so then he, maybe he, he did it for the follow-up record. But, um, yeah, I, I like that song a lot, too. It had this really cool groove in the, you know, the verse, and then it kind of you know kicked up in the chorus, and real simple type song. You know, there was songs on that record that were kind of simple, like Safe Home. Uh, Safe Home, maybe not as much, but, um, you know, I refused to be denied and um, taking the music back. And then you had, um, you know, songs that were a little bit more, um, the, the arrangement was a little bit more unusual, um, you know, like Black Dahlia or, we, or even um, What Doesn't Die. Um, so, it, again, I think it was a pretty diverse album, uh, but still sounded like an Anthrax record and still sounded like a record that was coming out at that time. And I'm proud of that because I feel like, you know, I feel like no matter what happened on, on some of the business dealings with the band, I think that, in my opinion, when we were making records, they sounded very current. Um, and I think that says a lot. Um, and for better or worse, like I say, you know, it's about taking chances. And I've, I always felt like when I was in the band, the band did take chances. And I always, I'll give them the accolades that I feel like they're still taking chances and always did take chances. And I think that's very commendable. So um, it makes you, it just makes you feel like you're more of a musician to do that than to rest on some laurels. I really think that's important. So... I can summarize the whole experience in, in saying that. Anyone that I run into that brings up the whole, oh, well, why isn't, you know, I want them to make another Among the Living or another Master of Puppets or whatever album it might be. It's usually somebody that's never picked up an instrument or, or decided to sing or write lyrics or anything like that to know that 
you want to evolve with things. You know, you don't want to always be that 17-year-old kid working at McDonald's. You want to aspire to evolve and and be something else, not just flip burgers the rest of your life. Well, you know, you make a record, and that's the record. And then you move on, and a couple of years pass, and then and your mindset is in, in a different place, and you end up making another record. And that's yeah. a part of where you're at during that time. And you're all during that time, you're going to be exposed with all kinds of thoughts and ideas and other forms of music and everything else that seeps into you as a, as a artist. And that's what you do. And, you know, you wouldn't ask Robert De Niro to make Goodfellas again, you know, because guess what? If he tried, it would probably suck. So, you know, you don't do that because that was the one, you know, and um, that's how it is in music. And, you know, that's art and not to get all pompous, but that's just the way it is. You, you know, the goal is to continue to grow and to, Make music and and any whatever your artistic uh, you know style is, whether you're an artist or painter or musician or actor or sculptor or you know a skateboarder, I don't know whatever is that you want to broaden your style and your your approach to things, and and you know that's to me is just a, it's no brainer. That's just the way it is. That's what you do. So. Yeah. Um, you can always go back and kind of reflect on what you did and some styles and maybe your mindset, but you know, the new Metallica record is cool, but it's not master of puppets, you know, it's right. And you know, because they already did that, you know? So, I mean, you know, it, it, it the flame is great, but it doesn't really, it doesn't sound like an old Metallica song per se. It sounds like something that they put out now. Um, so, you know, it's, and that's the way it should be done. You know, I'll always say this, and again, I don't make excuses because I just don't like to live life like that because I don't, it, it, it goes way beyond music for me. I don't, I just don't want to regret shit in life because I feel like if it all ends in five minutes and I drop dead on the floor from a heart attack, well, as I'm speaking to you, Victor, I would hope to think that I could look back and go, I had a really cool music career, and I think I can say that. So I, I'm pretty happy. Um, with the way things have gone. Um, I do think sometimes in the anthrax world, in my 12 and a half years, I do feel like, you know, some of the business dealings were a giant albatross around the band's neck, and, um, and they really hurt us, and they probably didn't give a complete, fair, and true assessment of how those records were, because I think if, you, if I explained to you, and I did, how every record you know, what was associating when those records came out, I think they weren't really, it just wasn't, it, it wasn't a proper uh, view of how it would have been if everything was consistent, you know, in terms of, you know, the business. You know, in the 80s, everything kind of rolled along. But that's life. And I'm not making excuses for it. Um, I just think that it probably would have been different if everything would have been handled better. But that's life. Um, it's the way it is. It's not something that keeps me awake at night. Um, you know, I'm still really proud of all those records that I make and, you know, people still bring them to me all the time to sign them. And I'm always grateful that people have them. And I hope that, you know, this interview propels somebody to go purchase one of those that they never did. And I think they'll be happy because I think the records are cool. 
out of these songs that I picked, could you see? And and I hope your publicist is covering their ear their ears right now because we sort of touched upon this in the past. Could you see playing you know these songs at you know at some point in the future or you know maybe at one of these cruises where it's some sort of a special engagement or something along those lines? Not a full blown tour, but you know something where you go out and do a few dates or maybe one special date where you you know bring some of these back. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. There you go. Could could you ever see yourself like I know that um some of the band members are involved in like these Metal Allegiance shows. Could you ever envision yourself doing something like that where you go up and and play a few songs with uh say an assortment of guys or uh, would your preference be to do something where you specifically handpick and enter in control of everything? Um, it's not like I would go out and do a long tour playing these songs because I haven't I, I haven't wanted to do anything like that with Armored Saint in terms of I just I haven't even really want to go on any long tours. Um, <laughs> really. That's the starting point, I'll say that. Um, and I feel the same. Um, although, you know, some things come up and you're like, well, this sounds like a great thing. So Armored Saint, the Queen's Right thing was just, it sounded like a great thing and a, and a great tour for the band, so we decided to do it. And um, and that's what happened, and it was cool. And other things are going to come up, hopefully, because <clears throat> that means people want to see us, both bands, you know, both what I did in Armored Saint and maybe in something by playing these Anthrax songs. If they come up and it's the right scenario, then I will embrace it. Um, <clears throat> I think it could be time to do that. Um, I don't know what yet, um, <clears throat> but I'm open to it because the timing seems like it's right. I mean, next year is 25 years since Sound of White Noise came out, so I guess you can connect some kind of a, a, a anniversary to it. <clears throat> and I've said this, and I probably said it to you, and if I didn't, it was by somewhere where somebody, uh, you know, wrote about it, and then next thing I knew, it's on Blabbermouth. But as I said, I mean, I'm 53. I'll be 54 in a couple months. You know, I feel great vocally. I feel great physically. But I'm also honest about my age. I'm not 25. I, when I did all those anthrax records, I was, you know, in my early 30s, late 20s, and those songs are demanding. And um, so... Yeah, I don't want to say, yeah, I'll do that in five years when I'm 60. <laughs> so the timing, it, it could be now. But it has to be right. It has to feel right. It has to be the right scenario. And, um, you know, I don't, it probably, it, it would probably just be me. And um, not me acoustically going out there and doing my dozen dollars. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it, you know, they, that band, the guys in Anthrax and their band is, is rolling and they should keep rolling. And I don't want to do anything to like stick a spoke in the wheel because that's not my objective. And I think it would be just, it would be bad for them. And I know that's not my goal is to create any kind of havoc there because it's just, you know, I, don't, I don't want to do that. So, um, but if something comes up and it, it could be cool and, and playing that, you know, um, I'm, I'm open to it because, you know, I, I kind of have the feeling like I, we titled the same record carpet, knock them and it's, you know, season of the night, you know, it's like, like I said, I mean, I don't know what the future holds. 
So uh-huh. um, I, I'm more open to that probably than I ever was, and um, because of just the realities of life and um, what's happening. Um, but it has to be right. It has to feel right. It has to be something that you know. I'm certainly it's not going out there to do it to you know because it's a cash cow or anything like that. It would be just. But, you know, the primary reason should be the most important reason that I do anything, and that is still for fun, quite frankly. So um, that should be the goal, and um, that happens, and everything else kind of aligns, which, you know, you can do it, and you can not lose money, and you can make, make a little money, and it feels like the right combination of musicians, um, and there's, you know, a story, then I think that it will happen. So that's what I'll say. Cool. Yeah, and I think for anyone that's chomping at the bit, I mean, you've also, I mean, you have a family now, you have your own business and things like that also, I'm sure, come into play, you know, whether whether going out on a long tour both financially makes sense, but also, you know, I'm sure you don't want to be away from your family for extended periods of time. Well, I, I haven't since I left Anthrax when that was 2003. Well, no, sorry, 2005. I was, you know, everything kind of happened as it should have. And that was, my daughter was like four months old when, when I actually left the band. And it just all made sense. And, and it's all felt the same since then. Um, so, um, you know, it's... And it's funny because Anthrax tours a lot, you know, right now. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it's challenging for some of those guys because they, you know, they, I know they love their families and they have a hard time probably leaving them, but they also are doing well financially by touring. And that's, you can't rest on the laurels of making a record and selling a million records because that doesn't happen. So you have to find other ways to make money and touring and merchandise is a, is a pretty solid way. You know, I know Charlie and Frankie all got on a limb and saying those guys had a hard time going on tour in 1997, they were like, Europe for four weeks. Oh, God. So, and I was like, I didn't have a family. So I was like, cool. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm sure, you know, they have kids, you know, and I'm sure it's even harder, but it is what it is. But um, you got to do what you got to do. Um, you know, for Armored Saint, you know, it was, it was it's never going to be about making a lot of money. It just isn't. You know, I have to, I have to, I have to tell Gonzo that still, like, dude, we're not going to make a lot of money, okay? It's not going to happen. But you can go out and make this amount of money, and you can have some really cool shows. And if we could do that, you know, which is what we did with Queen Drake, it was great. It was fun. Mm-hmm. And it was only for four weeks, and my wife didn't want to, you know, chop my head off on those guys. They came out and visited me, and it was all good. So it's just a matter of doing the right thing for the right amount of time, and having it be cool, and if it, all those things align, then then I'm open, you know. And that's how that's my, that's pretty much been my mindset now for you know ten years, uh, certainly five years. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at still. You know, I don't want to tour six months out of the year. I just don't. Um, I think I'm a better performer and singer when I when I have a limited amount of time when I go play because I. I I care about it that way, and I don't want to go out and go, okay, it's another show. Here I go again. Where am I at? What city am I at? Okay, how's my voice? Kind of crappy. Okay, let's go. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't work well that way these days, So, and, and I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it on my terms. It's kind of selfish a little bit, but at least I'm being honest. So. <laughs> and everybody who kind of works with me knows that. So, 
<laughs> that's that's sort of refreshing to hear, especially with uh, with a lot of bands going out and doing, you know, still as you're saying, six months worth of touring and their their lead singers, uh, you know, voice is shot two weeks into the tour, but they're doing, you know, <laughs> five nights a week. And it's, you know, you're never going to recoup. You're never going to sound good. So it's it's great to hear that someone actually has the mindset of saying, hey, I'd rather do less and give people more than, than let's give them more. And, you know, they receive less. They receive shit instead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we toured, but the same thing we did, and we actually did a lot of dates, actually, in the last two years. So it wasn't like we didn't play a lot of places. We did. We went out to Saxon, we cleaned right. Um, but then we did some dates at Metal Church. We did a lot of shows, actually. So, right. Um, I not that many in Europe, and most of it in Europe was done festivals. We did do some headlining shows and play some shows with Queensryche. Um, I don't like going out and headlining at this point because the reality is we know what we're, or the size of the band is, and, um, you know, I love the 30 people that come, and I'm grateful, <laughs> but 30 people is not cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm slightly joking, but not, you know, yeah. it's kind of insane to go out and play, you know, if we could support like a Saxon, a clean drag, and then we, we really add to the bill and then we're playing for more people and we're a great support act and we still go out and play a good, you know, almost an hour. And, you know, we play a lot of songs from various records. So it's good. Um, you know, so the, you know, if I went out and did this, this thing, playing some anthrax songs in my era, um, I don't want to go out and play a bunch of clubs or absolutely not. You know, I just don't want to do that. It would take away from a cool factor. Um, could I do some festivals? Yeah, maybe something like that. If there's interest, you know, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. You're, you're being too much of a realist for being a musician. What's wrong with you? <laughs> dude, I've been in this business a long time. I've been humbled many, many times. So I don't live in denial. I live on earth. And because that's the way it is, you know, that's to me the best way to live. Um, you know, I know, look at people love the dream and I don't, I'm not looking to deflate their dreams. I really ain't, uh, you know, it's like, that's the beauty of it. You know, it really is. But at the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. So what are you going to do? Right. You know, <laughs> you can live the dream as much as you want, but you are dreaming. It is reality. And when you see, okay, this is what we sold this is the merch, you know, that's it. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't fudge it. You know, it is what it is. So, um, yeah. it's all good. You know, like I said, um, you know, if it all ends today and I don't do another thing musically in my life, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done. You know, I am. So, and I, and I like living like that cause I think it kind of keeps me in check and it actually keeps me passionate about it. You know, honestly, because, I'm grateful for what it is. I'm not like resting on my laurels. I don't got like a billion dollars in a bank account. You know, that's not what what's driving it. What's driving it is actually truly loving it. So um, to me, that's my method. It's just mine. All oh, there's, you know, thousands of bands out there and they have their own reasons and methods and techniques as to how they do and what they do, why they do the, what they do. And, and that's great. You know, they, everybody has their own reasons. You know, great. You know, do it for you. For your reason, but I'm just saying this is my this is my way. So. Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 